This week, Oscar-nominated screenwriter Luke Davies talks to me about adapting the addiction memoir Beautiful Boy, starring Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet, and about his own painful and personal journey through heroin addiction. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hey guys, this is Christina Yerling Biro. Welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential. So one of the most powerful books I've read on addiction is Beautiful Boy by journalist David Sheff. In it, he chronicles his struggles with his son Nick's meth addiction, the anguish, the guilt, and terror of seeing your child succumb to addiction at the brink of death many, many times. And Nick Sheff was a few years sober when he wrote his book, Tweak, Growing Up on Methamphetamines. Now these two books have been adapted for the screen in a gripping new film called Beautiful Boy. Here is a scene between father David Sheff, played by Steve Carell, and son Nick, played by Timothy Chalamet. Oh, wow. So how are you doing? I'm doing great, you know, just, um, um, just doing what needs to be done. And what does that mean? I'm sorry, Dad. Um, Why don't we just have lunch and talk? We can do that, right? Mm. Please. You think that you have this under control. I understand why I do things. It doesn't make me any different. You're just embarrassed because I was like, you know, I was like this amazing thing, like your special creation or something, and you don't like who I am now. Yeah? Who are you, Nick? This is me, Dad. Here, this is who I am. This is not you. This is not you, Nick. What are you doing, huh? You always got to be controlling everything all the time. Let me, let me book your room no, at a hotel for a no, couple of nights. Dad. I want it to go like this. The screenplay of Beautiful Boy is adapted by director Felix von Gröningen and my guest, Luke Davies. Luke was Oscar-nominated in 2016 for his screenplay of the critically acclaimed film Lion. Before then, he wrote the novel Candy that later became a film starring Heath Ledger. Candy is a semi-autobiographical story about Luke's heroin addiction, an addiction that lasted 10 years. Coming up, Mr. Davies shares with me his story, why he chose to write a screenplay that in so many ways mirrors his own history of addiction, and why it was an email from his dad about Philip Seymour Hoffman that convinced him to adapt Beautiful Boy. Mr. Davies, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Christina. Now, considering your own history with addiction, did you ever have any doubts about writing the screenplay for Beautiful Boy? Yeah, my own history with addiction actually meant it's quite surreal that I'm that I'm here, that I'm talking to you, that my name is on the credits because when this possibility of a job came to me via my agent, I read the books and I recognized their power and their truth and their authenticity and and yet at this and I was broke. I, I needed a job. Um, but I had written Candy. Ten years earlier, I, I had written Candy the novel, published in '97, and then Candy the film uh, was made in uh, 2006. Mm-hmm. And there was a part of me that resisted uh, going, you know, go, returning to something that had dr- drugs at the heart of the subject matter. And so I made a decision 
not to take the job. I told my agent, I thought about it a lot. I read the books. I said, I'm, I'm not going to take this job. And she said, uh, okay, well, that's a shame. I accept that. I support whatever you decide. But you should still go and meet these people, the producers, Plan B, Jeremy Kleiner and Didi Gardner, because they're a really good company. They run the Plan B for Brad Pitt. So I took the meeting, and uh, the, a few days before I took the meeting, Philip Seymour Hoffman happened to die. And years earlier, Candy had premiered in at the Berlin Film Festival. Mm -hmm. And one night, all the Candy people and the Capote people all went to dinner together. So I had this lovely dinner with both Philip Seymour Hoffman and Heath Ledger. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, both beautiful people, rest their souls. So jump forward all these years later, the night before my meeting with Plan B, my father writes me an email which says, oh, I suppose you heard about Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's very sad. Luke, sometimes I feel this family is so blessed. And it was my father's way of talking about the fact that he understood that sometimes it was just luck. You could relapse and die as Philip Seymour Hoffman did. And, and at that point, you know, I, I was more than 20 years clean and sober. I was 23 years or something like that. And mm -hmm. the email just made me cry. And it made me and, – and suddenly it was like I realized – I had never investigated the father-son relationship fictionally in Candy, which was not very fictional, because when I was writing the novel and later the screenplay, it was just too difficult to deal with for me. And mm -hmm. suddenly, literally 12 hours before the meeting, here's this email from my father doing an unusual thing and being emotional and saying, sometimes I feel this family is so so blessed, you know, that you're alive and... Philip Seymour Hoffman is dead, is what he meant. Right, that's powerful. That's... At that moment, I just, everything shifted. And I thought, maybe I'm meant to take this job. And maybe this is a chance to do what I didn't do all those years earlier, which is investigate the father-son relationship that is already so beautifully in these books, but that I can right. bring to it something of my own experience as well. Right. I, I want to get into that a little bit, but I thought we could go back a, a little bit further. Um, I understand that you were a huge book uh, poetry lover already as a very, very small child. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself when you were a kid. Yeah, I, I was, um, <laughs> for whatever reasons, I was <laughs> very into poetry at a very young age, seven years old, I guess. I mean, you know, children's poetry. I used to learn a lot of poems off by heart. Um, but then from about the age of 13, I knew, uh, you know, I felt like an adult, not that I was, and I knew that that was the bug, that was the thing that had taken hold of me and that that was what I was going to do in my life, be a writer. At, at 13, it was, I'm, I'm going to be a poet. And, uh, and at 16, I saw a Werner Herzog film, Agira, The Wrath of God. And then add, mm. added to that was, oh, I'm, I'm going to somehow, I'm going to be a filmmaker. And then... That's a game changer, that movie. <laughs> yeah, it certainly was for me. It was the mm. singular turning point in my life, that movie. And uh, it kind of remains my favorite movie for those very personal reasons. But my life took all sorts of long loops and turns and circles and ups and downs and, and, and fun. Is it, true that, is it true that you were pen pals with Hergé? I, Tintin's author? I was. At the age of <laughs> nine years old, I felt the compulsion to write him a letter and tell him how much I loved his books. And uh, he replied, and we had this correspondence that went on 
over the next uh, five or six years. It was I, that's incredible. Yeah, I've got these beautiful, I've got this beautiful collection of letters with amazing letterhead and personalized Tintin Christmas cards, Tintin uh, or Tintin as we say, uh, Christmas cards, and um, yeah, it was it was an amazing correspondence. And what what sort of things did you guys talk about? A ten-year-old and a... <laughs> I think. Listen, I don't even know. Did he? How many people? How many Australian children wrote letters <laughs> to him? I have no idea. Did he have someone writing those letters? I have no idea. My letters are always just filled with whatever was going on in my life. We, my family, did this for the Christmas holidays. We went here. We did this. I saw this movie, and his letters. They always managed to refer to the things that I was talking about, and. Um, and say yes, maybe one day I'll make it to Australia, and so on. But they, they were <laughs> not great. form generic form letters. They actually always referred to the stuff that I was talking about in my letters. Well, that's great. And that certainly made me feel like it, he was the one writing them. So who knows? So you were this very smart um, child. That seems to be very wise, even even for for that young age. Um, Tell me, how, why do you think um, you got into drugs? What, what happened? I don't exactly know. Uh, and and in, in Beautiful Boy, we didn't try and give a reason. There's a scene where Nick just says, it was like my world went from black and white to technicolor. It, it wasn't exactly that for me. I just uh, so, I sometimes worry that I was so influenced by all those writers this age of 13, 14, when I was reading Hunter S. Thompson or Jack Kerouac on the road. And mm-hmm. drugs seemed like a good alternative solution to a world that already seemed, you know, ruled by the wrong people. And so it was a form of evasion. It was a form of escape. Kind of ruined my life for a long time. But the origins of it were innocence for me. It was just that. I liked being in a different, um, I liked having a different perspective on the world. And in the beginning, drugs supplied that. You know, there might be other deeper reasons. I don't know. There are theories that it's genetic, that it's a disease. Mm -hmm. People say all sorts of different things. All I know is that over a long period of time, it, it got really, really bad. And that whatever it is, I seem to have some kind of condition where if I take drugs, I can't stop. So I got into the habit eventually of not taking them at all because if I can't if I don't take the first one then I can't take the second one you know what I mean right, it's right, right, a long right. time like that for me but as for deep reasons I don't know there's all sorts of possibilities I, what was my level of sensitivity to the world or inability to deal with it I don't know Right. Um, and it, excuse my sort of uh, maybe naive question but it seems like such a huge leap to go from whatever recreational drug or smoking pot or whatever to actually using a needle um when does that leap sort of happen that leap for me happened i mean the the transition from as you say smoking pot towards heroin was weirdly enough more innocent and it was to do with snorting which seemed like i don't know it was wrong to think that that was different because it's not the substance is addictive whichever way you take it Mm-hmm. The real leap happened on the day that I had not enough money. Where I knew that snorting it would not be effective, but that if I injected it, it would be. 
And uh, so that was on at that moment. That was a really easy leap, despite the fact that I had spent already a couple of years with a heroin habit, afraid of needles. Okay, right. So you were already there. That was just the next level, sort of. Yeah, it was just the mechanism. And when you look back at, I'm I'm thinking this is the '80s or that decade what were some of the sort of worst experiences you you can remember of this sort of destructive time for you the worst of it there were a million things that were awful in terms of the day-to-day scramble of petty crime and so on but the, the worst of it really was the betrayal of family and loved ones you you'd be you'd be scrambling around mm-hmm. like a street hustler like a street cockroach doing whatever you could to survive and 98% of my life was just dread, fear, anxiety, anger, rage, resentment about the whole world. But in the middle of that, um, if I could uh, manipulate, uh, if I, you know, if I could get something out of family members whose trust was breakable, uh, I would do that. And, And that is where I carry the greatest guilt and shame that I was doing that. Yes, I found something powerful that you have written about this guilt you always feel regarding family. You said, quote, great poisonous reservoirs of guilt in the pit of my stomach that has never gone away and probably never will. Uh, I, uh, yeah, that's, uh, I, I would love to know where I said that, but it sounds like what I said. Yes, you did. I can, I can go back to whatever articles I, I got that from and, and send that to you. I don't remember at the moment, but it was definitely you. <laughs> that's definitely me. You're absolutely mm-hmm. right. Uh, great poisonous reservoirs of guilt. Um, yeah, you know, over, over it the- sounds horrible. That's what that was why I singled out that. I mean, yeah. I can really understand. That's because it's a fundamental betrayal of family, and um, and that's that terrible, terrible feeling that this is not you who's doing this thing, and yet it is you. Uh, you know, addiction is not about a nice person having a rough trot. In addiction, I kind of succumbed to the primary, to one single primary purpose, which was to to get drugs. But you know. That thing about it probably never will go away. I mean, I have spent and do spend. There has been a lot of healing in my family over the years, uh, of which I've been a part because changing addiction was not just about uh, stopping using drugs. It was about fundamentally uh, trying to change my behavior around that stuff and make amends. Were your parents as blindsided as David was um, when they understood the level of your addiction? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it was, uh, and it's not. I, I think this is not just a single moment of blindside that happens. That happened in my family, or that happened, according to the books, in David's and Nick's families. There's a constant eroding of um, disbelief when things go from bad to worse. And and I think that makes it even worse. It's not a single blindside that you adjust to. It's kind of like a hurricane of of um, blindsides one after the other that mm-hmm. t- that just turn into chaos. I I mean I understand that there was every you overdosed several times and but could you write this entire time? Yeah, that's the weird thing is during the worst of those years, I always saw myself. I never didn't see myself as a writer. 
and I wrote a lot of poetry and a lot of prose. Not much of it was very good. Weirdly enough, in the novel Candy, there are a few rescued fragments. They're towards the end of the novel. They're in ita these chapters in italics, these strange kind of chapters, in which I actually rescued some of those fragments from eight, nine, ten years earlier that I had been writing while I was completely off my off my face on drugs. Um, but yeah, I did write. It just wasn't very good, mostly. And you were talking at the the uh, at the beginning, sort of about that this you really hadn't looked at the relationship between father and son, which of course this film um, is all about. What kind of aha moments did you have about your own relationship with your dad when you were delving into the, their books, the chefs? Oh, it was very difficult at an emotional level. It suddenly all came back to me you know we had after some years after I got clean we had to some extent not faced the past front on the two of us but rather breathed a sigh of relief and moved forward as men often do <laughs> you know you handle things sort of sideways <laughs> and, right. uh, and take getting this job and delving into the book and creating the structure of the screenplay with Felix and the entire center of the film is about this father-son relationship. It was very confronting for me because it, I just had so many moments where I was seeing things very vividly from his point of view for the first time and what it must have felt like for him to come up against this thing that he couldn't, he couldn't understand, he couldn't defeat, and he couldn't help me with. And, um, and eventually he turned his back on me and that situation just as David does in the in the books and in the film right for me it was hard for me it was really uncomfortable uh, dealing with that situation and trying to make amends I mean I had to I one of the things I've done is to ask my father for permission to tell the anecdote about the um, email that he wrote to me the night before my meeting right. that, you know because I thought that's his story, not mine, and um, and that I wouldn't tell the story if he felt uncomfortable about it. Um, but it, you know that particular that moment, that email, is the single fundamental reason why I got this job. Because as as I said, I had decided not to take it because I just thought that I don't think I should. I don't want to be pigeonholed. Right. And yet I'm really, really glad that I took it because. It feels like a beautiful family at the moment. You know, the film is out, so we're doing Q&A screenings and so on. And it's not just Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet, extraordinary actors, David, but David and Nick Sheff, um, wonderful writers and wonderful people who survived a terrible ordeal. I wanted to go like this. My son has gone missing. Nicholas Sheff. S-H-E-F-F. -F. There's no one by that name, sir. There are moments that I look at him, this kid that I raised, who I thought I knew inside and out, and I wonder who he is. I thought we were close. I thought we were closer than most fathers Wait, and sons. Yeah. Why? I felt better than I ever had, so I just kept on doing it. This I'm isn't us. Fun. This is not who we just are. My son is out there somewhere, and I don't know what he's doing! I don't know how to help him! You can't! 
I don't feel like I have a disease. This isn't like cancer. This is my choice. I put myself here. I failed. I can't do it alone. I need to find a way to fill this black hole in me. I still have a family. I want them to be proud of me. What you have, you're going to find it again. You're going to get it back. Do you know how much I love you? I love you more than everything. 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 How did you get out of this? I'm not sure how many rehab stints you did, but what was the final straw for you? The end, uh, I, I went to uh, detox three times and re- rehab only once, which was the final one. Uh, at the end, it was a sort of terminal gray nothingness. There was no glory, no glamour, no big scams, no big crimes. It, it was just real kind of uh, patheticness and I was exhausted I was just exhausted at the end it was because for the first time rather than do the hustle I want I thought it would be better to die and so mm-hmm. and the fact that I had that thought how would I how would that happen how would I go about that uh, was some, something happened I resisted that thought it was like well wait a minute and so I staggered into a detox a treatment center in Sydney and um, I didn't have a grand plan. Something in that first week or two in that treatment center hit me with the force of revelation that maybe there was one single thing that I'd never tried, and that was total abstinence, mm-hmm. the thing that I feared most. So what what would that feel like if I could put that together, you know, for one day and then for another day and then for another day? It, it was very small beginnings and... I guess in those early years it was very fear-based, like, oh my God, I can't go back to that. And at some point it changed. It's kind of like I, I wouldn't, I would hate to swap my life. I still fear relapse, but it's been many, many years now, and I put my life into in a kind of a system of living at that. You know, I do my best to uh, ward off the possibility of that happening, and I feel mm-hmm. comfortable. What kind of things do you do? Well, I still, um, it, a lot of it's just mental. I still, 28 years later, I wake up some mornings and pinch myself because I feel such gratitude that I got this second chance, this feeling of I should not be here. Very occasionally I still have dreams that are about using, mm-hmm. and they're so distressing and disturbing that when I wake from those dreams, I feel immense gratitude like oh my god it's only a dream that's not 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 where i'm at at meetings at uh, 12-step meetings i hear stories from the outside of other people's experiences that remind me very vividly that's where i was and and in my dreams i get stories from the inside that remind me very vividly of that you know you still have that in you should you choose to activate it and and so far I've chosen not to activate it for a long time. Right. You wrote this incredibly, you know, the powerful novel Candy, which is I'm um, semi autobiographical. I mean, 
at least about you, you've said, and, and, and that became a movie with Heath Ledger you were mentioning. And then just tragically, um, we lost him as well to this. That must have been a huge blow. Yeah, it was a terrible moment. It was a terrible loss. I came to know and be very fond of Heath during this intense period of time that we were shooting the movie and we hung around a little bit. We weren't close friends, but he shared a little with me about his own struggles and and yeah, he was, it's just a terrible loss. What, where he was heading as an actor and what he was like as a human being, so warm and so loving and gregarious and you know, he was in a good place. He was in a largely good place. And that was, I don't know, that was, I believe what the coroner said, that it was an accident and yeah. and it's a terrible loss. I didn't know Philip Seymour Hoffman in that way, but it was kind of amazing to me that night that we had in that restaurant in Berlin on the night off from our screenings because that was my first ever experience with this the world of films being released and publicity and all, all of that and and it was a very warm and loving night do you think it was more difficult for these two the fact that they were in the fame game no i don't think that uh, i no? think that they're just the stories that we hear because they were extraordinary people who were very talented and who had very public profiles deservedly because of their talents i think people fall by the wayside or die or are, you know, terribly traumatically kind of disfigured all the time because of addiction. It happens all day, everywhere in the world. And I don't think it's any more or less difficult for famous people as for no. non-famous people. I just figure it's weirdly weighted in the world that we hear about the famous people, that's all. I want to ask you a little bit about Timothy Chalamet. He, he's so oh, raw, so convincing. Um, what do you know about how he prepared for to play Nick? He did a lot of research, not just the two books that were our source material, but a lot of research outside of that on the nature of addiction. Uh, he was very nervous. He met Nick. He wasn't looking for mm -hmm. things to imitate about Nick, but uh, he just wanted to kind of get to know him and his personality a little bit. Felix, the director, insisted on a two-week rehearsal period, uh, which doesn't always or often happen with American movies. It's a much more European thing, and it's a very good thing. He, he certainly didn't want it to feel like the father and son that the actors had just met on the day they started shooting. But I think above all for Timothy, I'm, I'm kind of borrowing his words from one of the things he said at a discussion we were in the other night, um, which was that his fear was that as an actor, he would try and work out what you have to do to play, quote, drug addict, unquote. But then as he went through the research process and as he mm -hmm. got to know Nick, he realized that what he was playing was a human being and that the moment he had that realization, he could relax. This was about a human going through a traumatic experience, which was a completely different concept to the concept of a drug addict being drug addy. 
which is which is what's so great about the books i mean the world still judges addicts i mean even though it's not just a moral lapse of judgment and 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 the books really show that that this is what you're saying it's a traumatic experience it's it's some a human going through this yeah yeah not being it's true you know uh the world there is a way of viewing addiction as an issue of uh, moral and ethical choice, and um, and right. we, we have, and and the books try and show that that's not the case. My my book Candy tries to show that's not the case, and what we've tried really hard to do in this film is to show that such such a viewpoint is pure reductionism, and is does not reflect. Right. The reality of how addiction happens in the world. Has your dad seen the movie yet? No, it uh, has not yet released in Australia. It releases, I think, in about one week. But I'm thinking you can you can get him a screener. I mean, you did write it. Well, I can't yet. There's no screeners floating around. It's ah. top high security. Okay. But yes, it's coming. I kind of wish that I could see it with him as a way of yes that's what was my next question i'm hoping that that's maybe possible maybe even if it just means i jump on a plane for three or four days and go to australia or or maybe there's a way that i can get him over here i don't know i'm trying to trying to work that out but uh yeah he hasn't seen it yet luke what's next for you what are you working on next is i wrote i co-wrote with david misha my very good friend and flatmate here in la six-part miniseries of Catch-22, the Joseph Heller novel, and that is coming out worldwide in May. That's with Tom Hanks? No, that's George Clooney. Um, that's George Clooney, okay. Wow. <laughs> we shot in, no, not Tank. Yeah. Um, we shot in Italy for four months in Rome and Sardinia. Christopher Abbott stars as Yossarian, the... Um, the, the hero of the of the story, the, the novel was written by Joseph Heller, published in, I think, 1961. The movie was made by Mike Nichols, starring Alan Arkin in, and John Voight and Orson Welles in 1970. So this is the first since then. It's a six-part miniseries. George Clooney directs two of the episodes and stars in the show, and it stars other great people like Hugh Laurie and Kyle Chandler and... Um, where we are very excited about it. They are editing right now the three directors, George Clooney. That's incredible. Grant Heslov and Alan Kuras. And yeah, but I did write a Tom Hanks a script for Tom Hanks. It's a western. Yes, that's what yes, I Yes, it hasn't uh, we are waiting to find dates, shooting dates and so on, but it's a western from a novel by Paulette Giles, a Texan poet, and it's a beautiful novel called uh, News of the World. And so yeah, I wrote that script and that that situation is moving forward, but I don't have any definite news on it yet on when and where. <laughs> well, Mr. Davis, I'm so happy for these incredible projects you're doing and, and, um, and you know, for, for sharing your story and that you got from there and that, that we, we actually can, can enjoy the incredible writing you're doing after everything that, that you went through. So thank you so much for this and, and for your time here today. Well, and thank you so much for saying that, Christina. I really appreciate it, and, um, and, and, and thanks for talking, yeah.
Thank you very much to Luke Davies. Beautiful Boy is out in theaters in the U.S., and in Sweden, it'll be out later this winter. And thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to Pop Culture Confidential on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show. We really appreciate it. This episode was edited by Katrin Lundell, and I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.